Hello and welcome to a special bonus episode of On the Road with Penguin Classics. My name's Henry Elliott and today I'm here to tell you about a new book that I've recently written called Elliott's Book of Bookish Lists, which I hope you might enjoy as a listener to this podcast. It's a miscellany of literary lists, essentially, from ancient Sumerian fart jokes to the latest winners of the Bad Sex Award, with Greek tragedies, medieval monsters, some Shandian digressions, uh, even a Chinese tongue twister in between. There are over 200 lists in the book, including lists of novels with single-letter titles, uh, books set in a future that's now in the past, the catalogue of whales from Moby Dick, uh, and a list of the Shakespearean moons of Uranus. But what I thought I'd do today is just share a few of my favourite lists. And given that we're kind of in the run-up to Christmas now, I thought I'd uh, take inspiration from that most Christmassy of Christmas lists, the 12 days of Christmas, and use that to kind of organise my selection. So let's head into it. So let's begin with 12 drummers drumming. Now, the drummers reminded me of actually one of my favourite lists in the book, a list by the French writer Roland Barthes, the theorist and critic. Barthes is, I guess, is probably most famous for writing uh, his essay, The Death of the Author. But he also wrote this really sort of eccentric book called Roland Barthes. Uh, so Roland Barthes by Roland Barthes is this kind of fragmented, idiosyncratic self-portrait of the man, composed of photographs and little anecdotes and vignettes and lots of lists. Uh, so I've chosen one of those lists for the book, and it's a list called J'aime, je n'aime pas. I like... I don't like. And essentially, it's, uh, it's just a list of things that he likes and that he doesn't like. So, for instance, he likes salad, cinnamon, cheese, marzipan, the smell of new-cut hay, champagne, flat pillows, toast, Havana cigars, slow walks, and on and on. And he doesn't like white Pomeranians, geraniums, strawberries, the harpsichord, animated cartoons, the afternoon, the organ... Marc-Antoine Charpentier, the composer, his trumpets and his kettle drums. So Bart doesn't like the drummer's drumming. But the reason I thought this was a good list to start with is that it illustrates, for me, what is one of the most interesting things about lists, is that they are simultaneously both extremely functional and prosaic, but also really mysterious and, you know, insightful what Bart says about this list is he says, this is of no importance to anyone. This apparently has no meaning. And yet, in this anarchic foam of tastes and distastes, a kind of listless blur gradually appears the figure of a bodily enigma. And I think what he's putting his finger on is that even the most functional list can be really expressive of a personality. You know, even just a a shopping list tells you a lot about the person who's written it. And that's one of the reasons why I'm fascinated by these things, that they're so creative and yet so mundane, so everyday in some ways. A 
Okay, eleven pipers piping. Now this is one of the most bookish lists in the book, because、um, I thought I had to include a list of the footnote markers. You know, when、uh, instead of using numbers, sometimes you use other markers for footnotes at the bottom of the page. You know, the asterisk, the obelisk, the little dagger, the diesis, the double dagger, then the silkro, the section sign, and the fifth sign traditionally in that order of markers is the pipe. Or cesura mark, which is just a little pair of vertical lines, and if you're interested, the sixth one is the pilcro or paragraph mark. Incidentally, the very first editorial mark was not the asterisk, but the obelisk, the obeliskos, which means little roasting spit, and that was first used in 280 BC by Zenodotus of Ephesus, one of the librarians of Alexandria, and then it was a subsequent librarian who introduced the asterisk, and then another librarian of Alexandria who kind of, you know, formulated them all into the symbols that we know today. And in case you're、uh, anxious. Rest assured, there is also a list in the book of all the characters from the Asterix and Obelix books. Ten lords are leaping. Now, this—I absolutely love this story. I had to include in the book the story of the kings and queens of Redonda.、Uh, now, if you haven't heard of Redonda, it's. It's basically an uninhabited rock. It's a big rocky island、uh, in the Caribbean between Antigua and Montserrat. It's almost impossible to land on it, and almost impossible to sort of build structures on it. But the author M. P. Scheel, author of、uh, lots of books actually, but The Purple Cloud is published by Penguin Classics. He claimed that he had inherited the kingdom of Redonda from his father, who had、uh, written to Queen Victoria during the nineteenth century and requested this island as his realm. And M. P. Shield claimed he absolutely was the king of Redonda. When he died, he he passed the、um, the crown onto his friend, the poet John Gawsworth. And for a while, John Gawsworth became King Juan. But then, after that, the line of succession becomes rather confused, and there are at least three sort of competing claims to the the kingdom of Redonda. Until recently, including the great Spanish author Javier Marías, who sadly died just、uh, earlier in 2022, and whose books are published、uh, in Penguin Modern Classics, he、um, inherited the literary estate of one of the claimants. So he felt like he was the king of Redonda. And what's brilliant is that every king and queen of Redonda who's claimed this crown has been very generous with granting. Titles liberally to their friends, so lots and lots of famous people have been made dukes and duchesses, lords and ladies of Redonda. So here are the lords are leaping. I'll just give you a few examples of the peerage of Redonda. People like William Boyd, A. S. Byatt, J. M. Coetzee, Gerald Durrell, Umberto Eco, Henry Miller, Alice Munro, Edna O'Brien, J. B. Priestley, Philip Pullman, Dorothy L. Sayers, W. G. Sebald, Dylan Thomas, and Rebecca West were all. Dukes and duchesses of this little uninhabited rock in the Caribbean. Now nine ladies dancing. Now these dancers、uh, reminded me of a list in the book, a list of the thunder words in Finnegans Wake by James Joyce. Now of course Finnegans Wake is the book he wrote after Ulysses. It's Joyce's last great. Masterpiece. It's an extraordinary book. It's almost unreadable because it's written in this kind of mix of dozens of different languages, lots of multilingual puns, often within the same word. I have actually read it, although I feel a bit funny saying that because it was unlike any other reading experience I've had. My eyes passed over every word, but 
I feel like with Finnegan's Wake, you either kind of skim the surface like the sort of froth on the ocean, or you dedicate your entire life to reading this one book and you drill right down into every word. I was definitely the uh, the skimming option. But within that book, Joyce includes 10 words, which each have 100 letters each, well, except for the last one, which has 101. So in total, these 10 thunder words have 1,001 letters. And they're known as the thunder words because they each represent a thunderous noise. In some cases, actual a thunderclap or else uh, applause or a, a kind of torrent of abuse or the noise of a door slamming or a great fall down. And in one case, this word represents the sound of people dancing. So I'm now going to attempt to read out this thunder word. And as I'm reading, see if this sounds like the noise of people dancing. Thing crookly ex in every pasture, six sticks lichens him around hers, the magabi kin kin can can, with down mind looking aided. Hmm, maybe. Uh, well, let's see. You can attempt to read the other nine thunder words in the book. Now, eight maids are milking. Now, I've gone for not maids, but mermaids, um, because it allows me to talk about a list by Jorge Luis Borges. Now, Borges, of course, loved lists, and in a way he haunts this whole book of mine because he, he keeps cropping up in different places. One of my favourite lists of his, which I actually couldn't include in the end, it was just too long, is um, in his wonderful story, The Aleph, where he describes this single point of space which contains every other point of space. And the narrator looks into this strange, dazzling little ball and sees this incredible list of things around the world. That's just mind-blowing. But one of his most famous other lists crops up in an essay in which he describes a certain Chinese encyclopedia called The Heavenly Emporium of Benevolent Knowledge. And this encyclopedia, according to Borges, of course it's all fictional, includes an unusual taxonomy of the animal kingdom. It goes like this. It is written that animals are divided into A, those that belong to the emperor, B, embalmed ones, C, those that are trained, D, suckling pigs, E, mermaids, F, fabulous ones, G, stray dogs, H, those that are included in this classification, I, those that tremble as if they were mad, J, innumerable ones, K, those drawn with a very fine camel's hair brush, L, etc., M, those that have just broken the flower vase, and N, those that at a distance resemble flies. Now, obviously, this is a kind of nonsensical list. You know, these are not compatible categories. And when the French critic Michel Foucault read this list of Borges, he was absolutely flabbergasted. It kind of shocked him to the core. He said later that this list shatters the way that we think, breaking up all the ordered surfaces and all the planes with which we are accustomed to tame the wild profusion of existing things. And it's so kind of... Uh, possessed him, so obsessed him, this strange list of Borges, that it inspired him to write an entire book about the way that we think, called The Order of Things. And I, I love it because, again, it it shows how strange lists can be. They seem so sort of um, familiar and normal, but, you know, by having a few non sequiturs, by kind of challenging the the sort of premise of, of listing things together, you can really shake our understanding of 
of how we think about things to its very core. And, uh, and I think, you know, Borges does that brilliantly in this list. OK, seven swans are swimming. Uh, well, this was an easy one. I wanted to include a list of all the different early modern playhouses which appeared in London between about 1570 and 1630. This very short period, really, 50 or 60 years, but was an absolute flourishing of the golden age of Elizabethan and Jacobean theatre. And, and, you know, it's a time of Shakespeare and Johnson and uh, Christopher Marlowe. And a relatively small number of playhouses exhibited all these extraordinary works of drama. So I've got a list of the converted inn yards, which began during that period, and a number of purpose-built outdoor theatres as well, and also the very first indoor theatres that started to be built at that time. And, of course, one of those uh, theatres was The Swan Playhouse, which was built in Southwark in 1595, not far from The Rose Playhouse, which was already there and very near where the Globe Theatre would be built just a few years later in 1599. So the Swan Playhouse is my swan swimming. Now, six geese are laying. Uh, I've gone not for a goose, but for a mongoose, because <laughs> um, uh, it's wonderful to see what pets different authors have had, and um, there are some which are just extremely unusual. One of my favourites is uh, the Chilean poet Pablo Neruda. He had a pet mongoose, which he called Kyria. Other ones on the list include um, Gerard de Naval's uh, pet lobster called Thibaut, which um, the legend is that he took it for a walk one day in the Palais Royal Gardens in Paris with a, a pink ribbon tied around its neck. Um, who knows if that's true. Um, apparently Virginia and Leonard Woolf had a pet marmoset called Mitz. And André Gide, the admittedly rather eccentric French uh, novelist, had a pet potto called Dindiki. Now, a potto is a kind of nocturnal, sloth-like primate from Central Africa. It's sometimes called a softly, softly. And, um, you know, I'm not sure this is what he should have been doing, but Gide fed Dindiki, the potto, on a diet of jam and condensed milk. Definitely one of the oddest pets that I came across. Now, five gold rings, everyone's favourite on this list. Uh, and also one of my favourite lists in the book is, uh, is this list that comes from these ancient Welsh manuscripts, these 15th and 16th century manuscripts um, in the Welsh language. There are several which mention this legend of the 13 treasures of the island of Great Britain. Now, these treasures are a collection of magical objects, which, um, according to the legend, Merlin, the wizard, is keeping safe in a special glass tower, and he's keeping them for the, for the hour of the country's greatest need. And they're also referred to as hallows, or treasures or hallows, and they include the ring of Eluned the Blessed, which makes the wearer invisible when you cover its stone. And other treasures include there's an invisibility cloak, there's a horn of plenty, there's a teleportation machine, uh, there's even a magic chessboard with um, a golden board and silver pieces that move themselves around the board. And I feel like um, Tolkien and J.K. Rowling must have had these 13 hallows in mind when you know they're thinking of the ring that makes... Uh, Bilbo invisible and, and the deathly hallows in Rowling. I'm sure they were referencing these treasures of the island of Great Britain. And it's a wonderful list. And I was really glad to be able to include that one. 
Four calling birds. So this this reminded me of a list. Um, do you remember in Bleak House, the novel by Charles Dickens, there's, a, there's an old woman, she's described as a crazy old lady in the book, uh, called Miss Flight, who lodges in, a, in one of the garret rooms above Crook's rag and bottle warehouse. And like the main characters in that novel, she was once a ward of chancery. She was once tangled up with a lawsuit, but she's been completely ruined by that suit. It's, it was an interminable case. All her money's gone. And it, she's a kind of warning to the young characters in the book of this is what could happen to you. And in her room, Miss Flight has dozens of birds, caged birds, which she plans to um, release on the day of judgment when her case is finally resolved. And when you hear the names of these birds, they kind of chart her descent into madness, basically. So the names of her birds are hope, joy, youth, peace, rest, life, dust, ashes, waste, want, ruin, despair, madness, death, cunning, folly, words, wigs, rags, sheepskin, plunder, precedent, jargon, gammon, and spinach. Great list. Now, three French hens. Uh, I had to, of course, include a list by Francois Rabelais, the French author of Gargantua and Pantagruel, which, um, you know, I think if you need to think of a particular author who absolutely loved lists, it's Rabelais. His books, he wrote five books in this series of the Gargantua and Pantagruel stories, and they are full of sprawling, absurd lists. There's lists of crazy genealogies of these giants he's writing about. Uh, there's lists of books in libraries. There's lists of games that different characters play. But one of the most famous and best lists is um, when the giant Gargantua, he sets out to test all the different things that you can use to wipe your bum and work out which one is the best. So he tries all sorts of things, you know, including a handkerchief and a cat, uh, a cushion, uh, spinach leaves, straw, a hair, a cormorant, um, and a French hen, hence uh, the connection to this list. And he goes on and on. It's, it take, fills up a whole page of the book. If you're interested uh, and want to try this at home, his conclusion is that um, of all the torchkuls, arse wisps, bum fodders, tail napkins, bunghole cleansers, and wipe breeches, there is none in the world comparable to the neck of a goose. And you'll yeah, have to check out that passage to hear his explanation of why. Two Turtle Doves. Now, this is a rather tenuous link, I have to admit. But the novel Infinite Jest by David Foster Wallace, which he published in 1996, it actually appears twice in the book. It appears first in a list of books that are set in a future year that is now in the past for us, because it was written in 1996, but it's set, it seems, in the early years of the 20th century. And it's set in a future in which global corporations sponsor each calendar year. So the, the years aren't simply numbered like uh, we number them. There's the year of the Whopper, uh, the year of the Tux medicated pad, and there's also the year of the trial size dove bar. So there's my turtle dove. And finally, of course, the partridge in a pear tree. And I thought I'd finish with one of my all-time favourite bookie stories. Uh, which is that in 1890, a man called Eugene Schieferlin released 60 European starlings in Central Park in New York. 
Now, the reason he did this was Schieflin was the chairman of something called the American Acclimatization Society, which was dedicated to introducing non-native species to North America. And, and there was actually a UK version of this as well, which is why we have grey squirrels in Britain. They, they sort of deliberately introduced these squirrels, um, I think, in order to eat them. But I don't know... Uh, uh, how many people eat squirrels nowadays. But anyway, the legend is that Schieffelin released these starlings in New York because he wanted to introduce all of the birds mentioned by Shakespeare in his plays into North America. Anyway, whether or not that's true, it completely backfired because these starlings absolutely thrived in America. And there are now something like 200 million starlings in the US. And they're really belligerent birds which fly in these huge, dense flocks and pose a real danger for aircraft and often swoop into farms and eat all the grain intended for livestock. So they're an absolute menace. But I love the idea that he wanted to introduce all the birds mentioned by Shakespeare into North America. And so just in case that's true, I thought I'd include a list of the 60 birds mentioned in Shakespeare's plays, just so that he knows what to tick off if he's still working on it. And it was really interesting to see which birds Shakespeare does mention, all the way from barnacle geese and buntings to woodcocks and wrens. And yes, uh, the partridge is on that list. It's actually mentioned a couple of times in Shakespeare, in Henry VI, part two, and in Much Ado About Nothing, when Beatrice is mocking Benedict. She says, uh, he'll but break a comparison or two on me, which peradventure not marked or not laughed at strikes him into melancholy. And then there's a partridge wing saved for the fool will eat no supper that night. So there you have it. Twelve lists from Eliot's book of bookish lists. And I hope you'll enjoy it. Do consider it when you're making your Christmas list and checking it twice. And then I'll see you again soon, I hope, for another episode of On the Road with Penguin Classics. Happy Christmas, everybody.